Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Good morning. I am Janice Leibovitz. You are my People of the Book, and today I am going to venture into what, for me, is completely uncharted territory. A topic that I very rarely engage on, and that is politics. But it is my absolute pleasure and privilege to have as my guest Evelyn Chronink. Evelyn, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thanks. I am very happy to have you to guide me through this very, very these very choppy waters because you are. This is your area of expertise. You're an expert. Am I correct? Well,、um, I wouldn't know much about the politics of Myanmar or whatever, but、uh, South <laughs> Africa's、uh, struggle history is—I、uh, found myself involved in it、uh, when I was very young, and、uh, yeah, so I, I have a, quite a lot of experience in observing it. Let me put、you、it、know. that way. Um, I, I wouldn't call you quite just an observer. We're going to chat about your latest book, which is called "The Unlikely Mr. Rogue: A Life with Ivan Pillay."、Mm. And Ivan Pillay happens to be your husband. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and and for those who don't know who Ivan Pillay is, um. He he was in charge of of the so-called rogue unit of SARS, and、um, also、um, worked with, in Operation Vula with Oliver Tambo. We're going to talk about what that was. With、But、some twenty-five years in between the two, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we're we're going to chat about、uh, in depth about this book, and and this is is. I'm going to ask you first out. How long did it take you to write this book? Because Including the index, it's over 420 pages. <laughs> so,、yeah. how long did this all take? Well, as they say,、uh, the, the the cutting takes longer than the actual writing. Yes, the editing is it, actually it the real work. <laughs>、uh, look, I had all my material from the past 30 years, from when we met, when Ivan was still in the underground and in exile. Uh, and trying to make a life in this、uh, new South Africa, and then finding that Ivan,、uh, who was then in charge not just of an investigative unit at the South African Revenue Services, but as acting commissioner for a while of the entire South African Revenue Services, and they were removed under the previous he and his colleagues were removed under. Under the previous Zuma government,、uh, under the pretext of of being rogues, hence the title, the unlikely Mr. Rogue.、Um, so, so the story really wrote itself. It was the story of our life together.、Um, the problem was not so much writing it. The problem was more like,、um, how do I put it all?、Uh, how do I not go overboard? How do I not turn this into some whining? But they are being nasty to my husband, kind of thing, <laughs>、uh, which I hope I have been able to avoid.、Uh, and then Ivan had, of course, had to have his say because it 
it's all about him. And if I didn't want to divorce, <laughs> I had to have him, obviously. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I think we pulled it off in about, about a year or so. Yeah, I think it's wow. a year. That's incredible. We are going to take a break and we will be back and we'll be chatting some more about this. It's fascinating. I mean, for someone like me who really has no background and no, no point of, of, you know, reference for this really, it's, it's fascinating, but we'll take a break and we'll be back after that. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am back with you and with my guest, Evelyn Hrunink, and we're talking about her book, which is called The Unlikely Mr. Rogue, A Life with Ivan Pillay. And as I said earlier, Ivan Pillay also happens to be Evelyn's husband. So as I said earlier, this is an extremely long and intense factual book. And gathering the material, as Evelyn said, she had all the material from over 30 years. So, Evelyn, obviously you felt it was, and I agree with you, very necessary to tell the story. And how did Ivan feel about that when you initially said you were going to write this book? Well, I think he was pretty terrified. <laughs> yes, because, because he's, he doesn't he's like the lived a life in the underground. And, you know, yeah. and you don't tell secrets. You know, you, you can't keep a secret. Yeah, he was Vastly still in the when, when he said that you must not talk about this or that. I said, oh, but I never kept a secret in my life. And he said, thanks for telling me. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what he was thinking getting married to a journalist, really, somebody who really hates the limelight. Um, you know, when he was still uh, in charge of SARS and uh, the revenue services and there were press conferences, you would hardly ever actually see him when there were pictures. Of course, he would explain and, you know, do all the things and accounting what was needed, but he never wanted to actually be in the spotlight. So, uh, but in a way, I think he now also, he ended up agreeing that it was necessary, not just that it was because it was about him so much as it was about telling of 30 years of recent history in South Africa through the eyes of somebody who had actually been in the trenches of the struggle. I mean, we're not talking about someone who was like in Moscow or or London. Or This, this was somebody who was in Swaziland where people were being killed like, you know, in the mid to late 80s. It was like at a rate of one or two every week who we were being yeah. killed there. Um, so this is somebody who risked his life for the ideal of a democratic, non-racial uh, society with, with where human rights would be expected and the doors of learning and culture and, you know, prosperity would be open to all. Well, we see today how much work there still is to do about that. Um, and then living 30 years with somebody... Who, who keeps trying to achieve that, you know, in, first in an ANC that is increasingly becoming uh, a, a, a pool where you jostle for positions and, uh, and you reach the top and then it's about contracts and, and tenders and power and it's no longer about all those ideals. Um, so that ANC, it's, 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 he, yeah, he was sort of... 
you you named one of the the paragraphs in one of the chapters African national chaos, which I loved. <laughs> well, that was still very uh, early on, that, where it and where that was very early on. Yes, much money or power. This this was in 1990 when there was still an apartheid government, and but the ANC was was just a, a yeah, it was a bunch of offices and a bunch of people in a number of countries here and there, and some very brave people and some people who did office jobs and some people who were actually working for the enemy, and it was all a bit chaotic. But it's very different from now becoming under, especially under Jacob Zuma, a kind of criminal syndicate. Uh, that's not the same thing at all. It just, you know, with power and and power struggles uh, and tenderpreneuring and gatekeeping and the Ismagashulis and the Zumas, yes. it, it, it has become, uh, yeah, I would call it a criminal syndicate. Yeah, because, I mean, there, there's a, a part in, in the book where, and this is before Zuma even became president, where there is a talk about a new commission of SARS coming in and the the way that it's done and the the players, the number of players that are involved and the, the legal people and the taxpayers and the and who met who and who spoke to who and the denying and I'm not going to mention names on air. I mean obviously people can go out and buy the book, read the book. Oh um, please this is this is when um, the legal people were dealing with Dave King. Um, oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> who owed um, SARS, as you say, vast amounts Zuma. of money. <laughs> yeah, I th- in hindsight, I think the only possible conclusion is that Zuma, who was then deputy president uh, under Thabo Mbeki, was was um, was doing those things already, uh, trying to get his people in, trying to work his own network under the official network. So he had a commissioner. There was a commissioner called Leonard Khadebe. No, he wasn't commissioner. He was pretending to be commissioner uh, in, in negotiations with a certain taxpayer. Indeed, Dave He King. was a manager. He was a manager. Uh, yeah, yeah, he yeah. was just a customs manager, but he said he yeah. was going to be the next commissioner. And Dave King, who was actually a billionaire and owned owed billions um, and and was, you can't call him a taxpayer because he was a non-taxpayer. Yeah, and he was, it was a, a big, evader, uh, basically. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it, it, it was a big challenge and a lot of work and a lot of legal effort and, and insisting uh, was, was, was done to get this man to finally pay his dues. Uh, and, and then you, you get already this, this undermining kind of thing that, that Zuma turned out to be very good at. He would position his people sort of in crucial places, the justice system, the state security agency. He did it at SARS. Interestingly, one of the first places he started to do it was the South African Revenue yes. Services. Maybe he saw something coming there. Um, yeah, so that is uh, part of of the history of South Africa, and it's also part of the history of of Ivan. And and I think in the book I tried to tell the one story through the other, as it were. Yes, and interestingly enough, in in this actual in this, this particular incident, um, the name Glenn Agliotti 
mm. is thrown into the mix as well. Yeah. And yeah. that's a name we know well when it comes to yeah. corruption and, yeah. Yeah. Now, he's by no means the only one, but you, oh, do, no, you get a all. number of these people uh, who call themselves fixers. And they they go to people in power who have certain problems, be it with tax paying or be it with a legal thing or be it with a journalist or whatever. And they will go and say, look, uh, pay me because I know other important people and I can make this go away for you. And, and sometimes that isn't even true because they will play the same thing with the other side. You know, it's, it's a kind of common yeah, that is exactly uh, what Agliotti used to do. He, yeah. he found he found those people who were in tax problems, had tax problems or were in legal trouble, and yeah. um, he would, for a fee, would mm. offer to make that go away. Yeah, and then he would also talk to the other side. I mean, I, I remember that there were also um, slots to see Ivan being sold at some point, and Ivan didn't know anything about it. But the people who would collect money to organize such meetings, uh, they would just pocket the money and then come up with some excuse. So that's that's the type of thing that they do. Um, yeah, and, and Glenn was involved with, uh, through, through a person of his in his network. He was involved yeah. with that whole Dave King thing, yeah. Yeah. So after we're going to take a break and then after the break, I want to take a step back mm. and um, just chat about Operation Vula. So mm. we'll take a break and then we'll go back in time and we'll talk about Operation Vula. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I'm back with my guest. Evelyn Hrunink, we're talking about her book, The Unlikely Mr. Rogue, A Life with Ivan Pele. And before the break, I said we were going to take a few steps back in time um, before SARS and before all of that, before the rogue unit or the alleged rogue unit. And we are going to talk about um, Operation Vula. So Operation Vula was when um, Ivan was in exile and he was working with Oliver Tambo. Yes. yes. Tell me about this. What what was it? And and for for someone listening who perhaps doesn't know anything about it and, and for me, before I, I I read parts of this book and I, I knew nothing. I mean I am, as I say, a, a political greenhorn and by my own admittance. Explain what, what this was. It was, I think, one of the most important operations that the African National Congress uh, could ever have done and partly did in pursuit of the actual ideals for the new South Africa. A democratic, prosperous state where human rights of everybody would be uh, respected and the doors of learning and culture would be opened and everybody could have fulfilling lives of citizens. I paraphrase slightly, but that is the ideal of the Freedom Charter. And everything else you do, however necessary, like your, your pamphlets and your, your, your propaganda towards the rest of the world and even fighting in the trenches uh, where you want to kill the soldiers of the enemy or whatever. It is, that, that is all part of any war, as it were. 
but Operation yes. Vula was uh, in pursuit of these lofty ideals. Uh, as I said, one of the best things that you could ever come up with because it was setting up a, uh, a network pro-democracy and pro-citizen involvement and and pro-upliftment even. <laughs> you, you'll be surprised that I mention upliftment in the context of armed struggle, but I'll get to that, uh, in all the communities in South Africa. Because what was South Africa in the late 80s? South Africa was, well, you know, fortunate for those fortunate enough to live in like what I would call walled cities uh, where luxury abounded and you had the police, the, even the South African police then still protecting you, exclusively you, um, you would not have noticed much of that. But in the rest of the country, there was barricades and fire and people dying and, and, and children growing up with hatred and revenge, uh, you know, in their hearts. Right. Um, you, what you needed was a kind of framework in communities that would not just say, uh, no, we are the good guys, apartheid is the bad guys. It went, the idea of it went much beyond that. It was about educating these children who now didn't go to school anymore because of war and Bantu education and, and resistance, telling them, look, no, here is, you, you need to learn, you need to, if you don't want to learn from them, then here there are other books, here there is this struggle history, there is the example of our leaders like Mandela and Tambo, um, here is a crash, here is a, because the UDF, the United Democratic Front, that was also, you know, um, working underground with the Vula operatives at the time, they were doing all that. They were doing little cooperatives. They were doing little political and social education. They ran advice offices for, for, for the unemployed and the people who were in trouble. They ran legal assistance for people who were persecuted. So there was this network that was, that could have been the beginning of of an organization of, 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 of com communities for a, for a, for a better country. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, uh, at some point, but they did make some headway. They did make some headway with that. And you still see in places where that network, that UDF and Vula network was strong. There were also weapons because it was war and you had to defend yourself. And, but it wasn't the only thing. Uh, and and in, in the places where that network was strong, where the consciousness was strong, you still have uh, the citizens who are sort of organized and, and, and you have a little less crime. I'm, I don't want to, to make it sound like it was paradise. It was all ramshackle and chaotic and yes. difficult. But and I see yeah, you yeah. described it as an internal resistance network, really. An internal resistance, but also a building up network. Um, because what apartheid basically did was uh, either you were a collaborator and then you had to hurt your own people, or you suffered in silence, or you were in trouble and then you were going to be thrown in jail. Now, none of these three elements are, are good for building a new country. Exactly. In all three categories, you will have traumatized angry, uh, humiliated people uh, who will then, as people do when they are hurt and angry, when an opportunity comes their way, 
uh, then they will grab it. They will not have that 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 backbone of the community that says no, we must actually stand all together, you know, for development. So I think a whole lot of problems that we have today with uh, people acting out of trauma and angry anger and hurt uh, can, can still be traced back to those days. Right. And building up an, 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 an internal network of resistance and, 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 and community resilience uh, would have been a great uh, response to that. Unfortunately, Vula met an untimely end when uh, the security police managed to arrest a few of the guys and the leader, Mek Maharaj, was thrown in jail <laughs> in 1990. Can you believe it? Mandela yes. was already free. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all these things happened. Yeah. So I, I love that that's, I mean, as you say, Ivan did realize that the, the book needed to be written and the story needed to be told. But I love his postscript um, mm. that is, is added at the end of the book because, you know, when, when you read this, you, you find that throughout it all, I mean, he was put through hell. Mm-hmm. He really was. Him, his people, what he stood for, what he still stands for from, from what I read here. And he is described as a good, quiet, determined man who really wanted to, to use SARS originally to fund post-liberation nation building. That was yep. the intention and that was what he, he really wanted to do. And it was a, a good intention. It was positive. It should have been inspirational and motivational. Water, electricity. Yeah. Yeah. That was Um, what it was for. Yeah. And throughout it all, he, he was a man who wanted to uplift community and he remained that man. It's why he wasn't alone. I mean, there was Praveen Gordon at the helm of SARS. And and he has a close relationship with Praveen Gordon. Yeah, and, and others. I mean, don't forget that when Zuma put his, uh, his, his confidant, Mr. Tomoyane, as commissioner, within a couple of months, uh, the entire uh, top layer of SARS actually left or was neutralized or fired or whatever. And, and he speaks yeah. here about, um, so, so in his postscript, he talks about the lessons that, that were learned. And he, he talks about the lessons specifically for those who are interested in public administration. And honestly, I mean, we need more people like him. And we can only wish that, that we have more people like him in positions of, of leadership. Because yeah, but there are. Huh? Yes. I, by no means do I want to say that this husband of mine is the most excellent and there's only one like that. That's no, absolutely, absolutely not true. In my eyes, he's the most excellent, but that's besides the point. <laughs> there are plenty who were fired. They were chased. Even now, if you see in Prasa uh, recently, the passenger rail agency, the one that doesn't manage to run any trains. They are for running trains, but they don't manage to run any trains. And then they fired a few people who are trying to do uh, an ethical job there. I mean, getting rid of the good ones is is still going on. It They still are doing it. It's amazing. They're still doing it. But the fact is that getting rid of the good ones, it hasn't made them bitter. 
they have remained good, as Ivan has remained good in his message that he, he puts in the postscript. Yeah. He still believes in our constitution that demands um, for for people to be fair and ethical. He, he still yeah. believes in that, and, and that is a lesson that, hmm. that he wants to convey. Oh, but there are still, again, I would say there are still many because the constitution is still under attack. You have Ace Schule marching on the constitutional court and bringing some helpless students with him yesterday. Um, that is ongoing. So in a way, the fight never stops now, does it? And I, no. and I would say that even with a view to other places, uh, as, 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 as soon as you lose track of what is right and wrong and and which right thing is under attack, then, uh, yeah, then you might as well give up. And I'm sure that he has um, moments, I mean, he's a human being after all. I'm sure he has moments where he is down and depressed and he feels that, what was it all for? Mm. Yeah, not so much. I can see you don't know him. <laughs> he just uh, reads more books and gets up then earlier after that. <laughs> and and would he he write his own book or is he just leaving this all to you? Oh, he goes around saying that he'll write his own thing, um, but I don't know if he will ever have the time to do it because he's still involved with an anti-corruption consultancy things now. Uh, Gee, well, that would keep him busy about twenty-five hours a day. Yeah, it? yeah. But I'm also busy. I still want to say this thing. I don't know if we're out of time already. How? No, no, we're not actually... out of time. I just I want to lead into um, the previous book because actually yeah. this this book is is a follow up. It kind of leads on from your previous book, Incorruptible. Yeah, I never intended it that way. Indeed, and thanks, Janice, because that's exactly what I wanted to start talking about. Also. Um, Interestingly, I met Ivan because I was already preparing uh, what would eventually become this other book, Incorruptible. Um, it was in 1988 that ANC representative Delcy September was assassinated in Paris, France. Yes. And I was in Amsterdam at the time. I didn't know Ivan yet. Uh, but I got stuck into that assassination because it was just so weird. Everybody seemed to accept the narrative that these were apartheid uh, death squads uh, who did that because why? Uh, because that's what apartheid death squads do. They kill ANC representatives. But after a while, I found out I was just going regularly to Paris from Amsterdam. It's only 500 kilometers, so that was not too difficult. And I found that there were no apartheid death squads. And why would they? I mean, they would kill people plenty, plenty in South Africa and Mozambique and Swaziland and, you know, all the frontline states, as they were called then. But why call people, why kill people who were in a Western democracy uh, just spreading the message of the ANC? That didn't make any sense. Um, and I found that Dulce September was also, like, in a way, uh, a person who stood against corruption before it had even started, in a way, because late 80s is when the changes in South Africa are afoot. Yes. And South Africa is a very important bastion, uh, especially for, for Western Europe and, and America, in a way, in, in Africa, uh, you know, to, to keep 
uh, in a way, they would see it as, as keeping peace and keeping contact and keeping things going. And South Africa had this great nuclear capability, which Western countries, uh, France, also Israel, by the way, helped develop. Um, and there was plenty of documentation about it at the time. And Delcy September stood against that. And in the end, that had something to do with her assassination. Um, I took a long time to find that out. But the main thing wasn't so much the sanctions busting, because lots of countries busted sanctions. America did, uh, the whole of Western Europe did, Russia did, everybody did. Um, But that, that her own movement was already starting to become divided into people who were still in the trenches and fighting and getting killed. 1988, not just Dulcie, lots of people were getting killed yes. in South Africa. And, and, and I, I actually, the book, I mean, Incorruptible, on on the cover, it's it's about um, Dulcie September's um, murder, Anton Lebowski, Chris Harney. But but in mm. your, your investigation into that, you actually uncovered many, many more. You said you just couldn't fit them all onto the cover. Yeah. Yes. Then there were these mysterious car accidents and, uh, yes. and so on. Yeah, and in the end, it was all about big geopolitical, nuclear, uh, oil, diamonds, uh, military interests that the whole world, in a way, uh, had uh, had something to do with. And, you know, you can still accept that because it's sad, because, but that's the world we live in, what you're going to do. Um, but what was problematic was that a movement that had heretofore uh, been been what you call it, staunch about human rights and democracy and a better uh, South Africa was now also becoming contaminated with these things. You had a top layer of ANC diplomats who were now jostling for power and positions and uh, being approached by people who wanted contracts uh, in all from all parts of the world, and and you could see that schism happening. And Dulcie September, I think, saw that happening because she was getting into the arms trade deals that were taking place in uh, in, in France with South Africa, and she found that people were dealing with the apartheid regime in Pretoria, but also already trying to make friends with the ANC. And, and that is eventually, I think, uh, why even her memory has become silenced. I'm not saying that uh, uh, it wasn't apartheid uh, plus its Armstead friends who killed her, because that's clearly who killed her. But then the silence surrounding that, uh, a whole lot of high-profile bosses in the movement who knew I'm not saying that everybody knew, yeah. but some knew what yeah. was going on to keep quiet about it because now they were going to be the bosses of Pretoria and of these weapons. And 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 in a way, that is where you can already see the schism between yeah. and, the, the real and politics. And the corruption that was, was starting yeah, to spread already. And, and positions and contracts and whatnot. And then people left in the trenches and Dulcy September was somebody who stuck with those who were in the trenches and wanted to stick to the Freedom Charter and the ideals. And she just wanted to get through to her own top levels. That is what is so sad. And I think the same you can see in the story of Anton Lubovsky. Something similar happened to that freedom fighter from Namibia. Yeah. And similarly, Chris Hani 
in, in who was killed in, in 1993. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, evil white apartheid I'm... people are blamed, but there was always so, much more to it than that. Sorry, I need to interrupt you. We're going to take a break. And um, when we come back, I'm actually going to continue with this because I think it's something that needs to to be spoken about. I think, and, and we, we do have a couple of other um, interesting things to cover um, about Darcy September, don't we? So we're going to chat about that after the break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I am chatting to my guest, Evelyn Hroning, and we were chatting about her latest book, The Unlikely Mr. Rogue, A Life with Ivan Pillay. But we have also been chatting about her previous book, um, Incorruptible, which is about the murder of Darcy September, Anton Lebowski, Chris Harney, and many others that Evelyn actually uncovered in her research for that book. Um, when I actually looked up myself, I mean, I do remember um, particularly Darcy September's murder, Evelyn, and when mm-hmm. I looked this up, when you read the timeline of Dulcie's life, and uh, yeah, and and her the way she became involved and politicised, it's such a, a seemingly I don't know whether it's been watered down or or simplified for for public um, consumption. It seems like such I, I don't know how to describe it. It's Eurasia. Yes, it seems like such an innocent, you know, timeline from, from where mm-hmm. she started as, as she was taken out of school, as she managed to complete her, her grade 10, and then she trained as a teacher, and she was introduced into a teacher's union, and then she went from there, and with some friends, she joined another movement, and she went from there to somewhere else, and it's all so diluted. Yes. yes, we would use the word erasure, uh, which is uh, a term I have to credit uh, filmmaker Enver Samuel for. Um, before I forget, I must say that the documentary that Enver Samuel made, Murder in Paris, about the murder of Delcy September, for which I collaborated, and, and a large part of it is about my research. But Enver also went into the life of Delcy September precisely because of, of what you said there, to uncover the truth and not go with that diluted, innocent narrative, uh, innocent in a bad way, because, of course, Delcy yes. was innocent in terms of being ethical and principled and strong. But she wasn't like this little woman who was just saying things about black children suffering and, you know, who you could pat on the head and say, oh, how sad that they killed you. No, she was fierce. Uh, so The, o- the only to... thing that comes through about, about anything sort of, you know, that, that pervades that was, oh, when she, she joined, when she moved to some position, she went for combat training in Russia. And I think that was the only thing I picked up on that was slightly combative, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I no, thought, but, uh, oh, she okay. was 
she was not combative in the sense that she would pick up an AK-47 and want to go to you know, whatever border area to shoot South African soldiers. And that was not her. She was combative in that she was a very strict school teacher. <laughs> she <laughs> was that school teacher who would not accept shoddy work, who would not accept uh, people not doing their homework, and that went for people in her own movement. Um, I, I, I spoke to people, ANC members, who sort of with a smile told me that they were in awe of Delcy September because the struggle was a serious business. I mean, people, children were getting hurt. Children were getting bound to education, and if they protested against that, they were getting shot. This yeah. was not just a thing that was a hobby. This was serious business, and you had to be serious and work hard 24-7, and Dulcie did that, and that is why Dulcie started to investigate when things were not all right, when there seemed to be some top layer uh, of, of, of big shots that were involved in, in shady deals. And no, that could not happen. You had to stick with the lesson. You had to stick with the syllabus. You, uh, and, and eventually that's the context in which he gets neutralized, well, assassinated with five bullets in the head, but they had yes. to neutralize uh, uh, the her. Back, uh, the back she of was... the head, the back of the head. No, oh, no, 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 in the face. Oh, because... It was in the, the face. No, there I has, read, been, lots of, there has read, been lots of disinformation. Yeah. It was definitely in the front. Uh, as a professional assassins try, sometimes it happens. I read up on professional assassinations. Can you believe it? <laughs> Usually they, they shoot you in the front to make absolutely sure they have the right person. Yeah, because what I read, it said in the back. No, um, no, if you're research, researching professional assassinations, yeah, you must you must wipe your search engines. <laughs> wipe the search engines <laughs> yes, I think uh, I should have done that ages ago. Now it's, but what I sorry I forgot nice. to say that this documentary Murder in Paris that follows this research is going to be aired on SABC three on the 21st of March. So that's in like nine days time. Yeah, nine. No, no. um, yeah, so I would like everybody to watch that. And the second part on the 28th of March, that's one day before the anniversary of the assassination, which took place on the 29th of March. Okay, so that, that's, that's really interesting. And, and that, that highlights your your 30-year research into her murder. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And as you say, you didn't intend for this book to follow on from that, but it does. Yeah, because and that was like 1988. You see that this jostling for positions and this forgetting of principles is starting to happen. Now we are living with the aftermath of the ultimate betrayal of the principles of, of what was once the ANC under the Zuma government and the criminalized ANC. So it's like from beginning to end. Did we not realize back then what, what was coming, where, where, what direction this was going in? Well, it was like very slowly, you know, things go so slowly. And in a way, it's the ways of the world, because where do you have a completely ethical, citizen minded government that that really dedicates all resources to the upliftment of its own citizens? Uh, if you can find a government like that, I'll be happy to hear. Um, but uh, in a way, the things go so slowly that... Uh, you can almost do nothing about it. And in another way, um, 
something could, yeah, it sounds contradictory, but something could have been done. For example, if the United Democratic Front had not been uh, dissolved, because it was dissolved, because at the time the ANC felt, no, we're back now, guys, we'll take it from here. But that UDF was a very strong pillar in all the communities and it was giving citizens a backbone and advice and all kinds of projects from, from, from childcare to, to legal advice and employment. And yeah, it's a pity, but in a way we got it back, uh, under, in, in the, in the protests against Jacob Zuma, things like that started to, Surface again with NGOs, Section 27 in education and health. Uh, you had the TAC, by the way, under Tabo Mbeki when Mbeki thought he knew better than everybody else and AIDS didn't exist. So you already got yeah. that popular movement for uh, addressing the AIDS epidemic properly again. So, so you have little remnants that are starting to come up again. You've had the media, you've had the courts, you know, the struggle carries on on all these levels in a way. Right. Yeah. Right. We're going to take one last break and then we are going to be back to wrap up. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. I am wrapping up with my guest, Evelyn Hrunink. We have been talking about her book, The Unlikely Mr. Rogue, A Life with Ivan Pillay, and also about her previous book, Incorruptible, which was about the murders of Darcy September, Anton Lubovsky, Chris Harney, and many others, which she inadvertently uncovered while she was researching the um, three murders that she had originally set out to research. Um, so, Evelyn, knowing you and knowing the research that you've done over these two books in particular and other books that you've written, um, I hardly think you're going to take a break now, are you? So <laughs> what's next on the cards for you? What are you working um, on now? What will you be working on? I would like to uh, write children's books, actually, <laughs> but I oh, never wow. get around to it. <laughs> I never books? get around to it. Um, but uh, I'm still hoping that maybe in 10, 20 years' time, when, in a, when I'm in my 70s and 80s, I'll get around to it. First, I'm still trying to do a Western, strangely, a Western version of this book, uh, the Unlikely Mr. Rogue book, because it is very South African. There's a lot of detail about South African politics. And my challenge now is to take out the the, the lessons that apply that that were lessons to me that I think apply more internationally about right. ethics and principle and, and democracy and human rights in politics and how they tend to get diluted and distorted and power struggles take over and then you get people suffering again. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'm making, I'm, I'm trying to make a version that, that will speak to a, a wider public than, out, than outside South Africa. That's what I want to do. And and then later, one of the children's books I have in mind is a, a book about nannies. It comes from Dulcie September, who was a school teacher. I think if we would, <laughs> a bit, it's a bit of a Mary Poppins-themed uh, idea. All these guys that are just doing bad stuff, geopolitical power stuff that oppresses people either in your own country or elsewhere and, and reasoning it out with stupid reasons and not with principle and not with integrity. They need nannies. They need Mary Poppins 
They need somebody telling them, no, give that back. That was not yours. No, what have you got that behind your back? fabulous. Move your hand. No, the other hand. <laughs> you know that. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> and then it's it, so First true, isn't it? They're like yeah. school children in the playground, really, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and if they behave like that, there should be very big, uh, dangerous-looking nannies bringing them back. <laughs> Refresher course. <laughs> Refresh your course. No, they, they, they need reminding that there are consequences to their actions. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That sounds like a fabulous idea. But no, no kind of um, Mills and Boone romance books or anything like that. <laughs> well, there is actually, you know, um, you try to get into politics, you said when you read my book, but I've also had a female who, who, Usually, uh, well, I must admit, I've also read Mills and Boons, and they are proud that they're still doing it. Um, and they read the book for the love story. They they ask, oh, but yo, you had so much to overcome. And then, oh, I have to go through 20 pages of politics. But finally, I'm there to see how how you guys went on from there. <laughs> so, so there, yeah. yeah there, there is a love story that runs through your book. There, there really is because, um, I mean, what you guys went through and what you, you thrived through it all. I mean, you know, it's it's no mean feat to go through what you went through and then to, you know, you return. And, and also it's a, really a love story to South Africa. Yes. This is the best country in a sense that all the challenges of the world come together here, isn't it? You have all the colors, all the wealth levels, the greatest inequality in the world, the genders, the tradition, the modern ideas, everything plays out here. If we could just get it right here, that would be some example for the rest of the world. At least I like to think that. Not Absolutely. that it will happen tomorrow, but <laughs> one can always just carry on. And that's how the book ends, actually, with those people. Absolutely. Carry on and try again. Yeah. I think that's the best place to leave this. Evelyn, thank you. You've been a marvelous guest. Thank you thank so you. much for giving me time this morning. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for you listening, as I always tell you, take care of each other, wear your masks, and read a book. <laughs>